So I think it's helpful for our listeners to know who are not from the Mid-Atlantic region or not from Maryland or Baltimore, that Baltimore was the first city in the United States to use race as a, a driving factor in local land use and zoning. And this whole pattern of residential segregation really took off from the the process Baltimore City put in place in 1917. So it's it's really interesting, Morgan, to hear you say it's still with us, right? And it's still framing and shaping life outcomes. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Bernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is Mike Hancocks, and my co-host is Bernice Miller-Travis. Our topic today is the Baltimore Ecosystem Study, and our guest is Morgan Grove. Bernice, I know you are a big fan of Morgan's and the work he is doing, so I'll let you do the honors. Thanks, Mike. Morgan Grove is a social scientist and team leader for the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Services Baltimore Urban Field Station. Morgan has worked in Baltimore since 1989, quite a, a few years ago, with the forest since 1996, and he has been a co-principal investigator in the Baltimore Ecosystem Study since its beginning in 1997. Morgan, welcome. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you both. Hey, Morgan, why don't, why don't we start off by explaining what the Baltimore Ecosystem Study is? The Baltimore Ecosystem Study is a project principally funded by the National Science Foundation. It's part of the long-term ecological research program, which includes 25 sites located in the United States, in Antarctica, and the Arctic, with the primary goal of understanding long-term ecological change. The Baltimore Ecosystem Study is a little bit different because we're studying a city, we're one of two urban sites. The other one is in Phoenix. Because we're an urban site, we're interested in studying not only the environmental long-term change of the city, but also the social and the economic change of the city. Quite humbly speaking, our goal is to understand Baltimore and its region from 1650 to 2050, building data and understanding and, and ideally tools that can be used to understand how the city has changed, to understand how it's come to be, and to try to understand where it might be going. And who is participating in the study? The two main sort of backers of the Baltimore Ecosystem Study are the National Science Foundation and the USDA Forest Service. We have numerous other federal agencies involved, such as the U.S. Geological Survey, who does a lot of, of the water work that we have. The main recipient of the National Science Foundation grant is the Cary Institute. We have social scientists, ecologists, physical scientists, economists working on this project from a number of different universities, including the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where my office is located. We have NGOs involved. We have other universities like the University of North Carolina, Ohio State, Ohio University, University of Vermont, 
And we also have local government agencies who participate in this as well. And what is your role on the team? Well, I have several roles. The main science role is that I'm in charge of leading social science research for the Baltimore Ecosystem Study. And we have about six or seven other social scientists who are working on this. And when I say social scientists, I include economists, even against <laughs> the will. So I'm responsible for, for leading that science, but I'm also responsible for its integration with the work of ecologists and hydrologists and so on. I work on the synthesis team, which looks at how we integrate across disciplines and across scales and across time. And then I also am the chair for the project management committee meeting, which meets every month among some of the leads for the entire project that helps to keep, make sure that we're keeping the uh, trains running on time and that we address issues in a timely way on behalf of all the scientists. So what are some of the types of projects you might be working on? Like what, what are some of the sub projects? One of the main projects that I work on is trying to understand the function of residential landscapes. When you go to any city, whether it's in the United States or South America or even China, you find that the dominant kind of land use in any city is residential land use where people live. And what we try to understand is why do they do what they do in terms of the energy they consume, whether it's electricity or food? How do they manage the land around uh, their homes? And what factors may affect whether or not they adopt new kinds of practices? Economists would like to think that it you know, we could affect people's choices by providing them with economic incentives or disincentives. While those are important, we also need to pay attention to the social norms uh, or peer pressure that affects what people do or do not do. One of the current working hypotheses that we have is what we call the landscape mullet hypothesis, which is all business in the front and party in the back. And this notion that how people manage the land in the front is to keep up the appearances uh, with their neighbors, to keep the neighborhood looking nice. And what they do in the back is where the party happens, maybe where you find more of your ecological diversity, where things are not so neatly kept, and the plant choices that you make are not necessarily the standard that's set out front. Now, that social peer pressure could have deep ecological meaning and consequences because of its effects on ecosystem processes, biodiversity, and so on. It also is important because residential landscapes, as I mentioned, are the dominant kind of land use in any city. And so the ability of any city to achieve its sustainability and resilience goals are going to depend upon how those residential landowners do what they do. Another piece, and, and something that Bernice is familiar with, is our, our attempts to understand the long-term environmental justice history of the city, how decisions are made, who makes them, who's included in them, what the consequences are for the people who live in the city, and recognizing that those that participation in the input into what are the key issues, the decision-making, and the consequences are not evenly distributed among different types of people in the city. So, Morgan, 
We'd like to ask a little bit more on that. There's so much that we could talk to you about. My goodness, 400 years of research, right? Looking at a particular geographic location over the span of 400 years is nothing short of spectacular. But I I first heard you talk about this work in, I think, 2009 at the Maryland Water Monitors Conference. And I'd like you to explore economic and social inequality and diminished access to nature. Well, I think, and I guess it goes back to this residential object of, of study that we have for us is is to really understand the history of decision making that, that's gone on in the city. And a fundamental question in environmental justice research is which comes first? Do you have the people there first or do you have, for instance, the polluting industries and the people might move there because the cost of housing may be lower because it's, it's undesirable? One of the things that we set out to do was to look at the long-term history of zoning variances, which is a key facet to a lot of environmental justice research. And we put together the, the long-term census history of the city, so we knew where people lived. And then we pulled all the zoning variances that had ever been applied for for the city of Baltimore. We coded them as to whether or not they were environmentally related or not. And then we looked at whether or not they were approved or not approved. And then we looked at the case history for whether they were approved or not approved. And what you see over the long term, going back to the early 1930s, is that there had been a racial bias in whether or not those zoning variances were approved or disapproved. And what you saw was that in low-income neighborhoods, but particularly in African-American neighborhoods, that those zoning variances were approved. When you looked at the same kind of zoning variances applied for in white neighborhoods in Baltimore, you saw that they were disapproved. Now, that zoning variance bias persisted up until about 19, the 1970s when the city reformed its zoning variance process and, and who was in charge of making those decisions. It may be a coincidence or not, but that's about the time that the city turns to predominantly African-American and you see some shifts in power. When you look at the case law for why they were approved or not approved, one of the things that you see as a hidden hand behind this is something called redlining, which is uh, a form of where investments are made or are not made uh, through mortgages and, and various types of loans. Now, in the earlier housing crisis that occurred in the 1930s. Ours is not the most recent. Ours is the most recent. You had the major one in the 1930s. The federal government set out with something called the Homeowners Loan Corporation to decide where mortgages should be saved, where homes should be saved, and where mortgages should not be saved. Those neighborhoods that were designated as undesirable places for resuscitating loans were redlined. They were maps where people's neighborhoods were literally redlined and said, this is not a good investment. In that process, they looked at a variety of different things that could cause a neighborhood to be redlined. Some of it was related to whether or not it was close to a park, whether or not it was related to or close to industry, the quality of the housing stock, the, the types of employment, but it also accounted for uh, whether or not you had, in their terms, a Negro population or you had Irish or Italian immigrants who lived in those neighborhoods. And in 
Baltimore, you see that uh, a number of neighborhoods were redlined because they were African-American. And they could not get investments for their homes, mortgages for their homes to make any kind of improvement. And so those neighborhoods tend to deteriorate. As they deteriorated, it caused those neighborhoods to be less desirable. And when the zoning board would look at, well, where should we allow zoning variances to occur? Part of the case law indicated, they said, well, these neighborhoods have already deteriorated. So it's quite reasonable to put those negative investments, those polluting industries in those neighborhoods because they've already been, they've already declined. And part of their rationale for why to disallow them in other neighborhoods was because, well, they're pretty nice. There was no notion of an equal burden of polluting industries in the city and in the long-term segregation that had existed in the city. And then the redlining set the stage for those disamenities to go into Baltimore. Some of our research looks at not only the, the location of these disamenities, but the history of amenities as to where you had parks and, and you see a, a racial history to where uh, land was purchased and parks were established in the city. So those are two cases of a pattern that we observe. But we're also interested in the procedure. How did these come, things come to be? I just gave you an outline of how it came to be for those disamenities, but then we look at the procedures for where did amenities get allocated. We find, as I mentioned with the parks, that people, the, the, the fact that African-American neighborhoods needed parks were not a compelling reason for where land was acquired or parks were built. And more currently, we see when we look at where do things such as tree giveaways, where are the most effective, um, we, we find that they, those tree giveaways are, uh, we have a major rainstorm here. The, the sound that you hear is the raining. Um, we find that they, those tree giveaways are, uh, more, more currently we, we see the, the process now of trying to promote environmental programs such as tree planting in that they're least successful often in African-American communities. And we need to look at why is that less successful in those communities. This is part of the procedural understanding. Are we not addressing their issues? Is uh, the messengers that we're using the, the wrong kind of people? What I mean here is rather than, say, citywide environmental NGOs coming and reaching out into these communities, should we be working through different power structures and information structures that the city has that, that exist in these neighborhoods, such as through churches and through mosques. We also see the need to work in these areas because of that long-term history of redlining that I mentioned, where, and it's amazing to see, and it's only because we have a long-term perspective, that if you look at where we had the redlining map of 1937 and where, I have vacant, where we have vacant lots and where we have the lowest amounts of canopy cover, those are in those same neighborhoods from 1937. So that long-term history of segregation is still present in what we see in terms of the environment. And it also points to, as we initiate programs, that maybe we need to change the way that we do things in reaching out and trying to work with, with folks that have been underserved for so long. So, Morgan, this is really one of the most fascinating 
areas of research that social science that I've heard anybody talk about in a long time. And a lot of social scientists who work in the environmental justice space really try to make these connections. But you have this longitudinal study that really, you know, shows historically how this has come about. So you've you've identified the impact that residential segregation has had going forward. Can you talk about the access to natural resources and health disparities and other quality of life indicators? How does that come up and what does that say about current conditions in Baltimore today? I think that these, this, this lack of connection to the environment plays out in, in, in two different ways. One of which is that many of these disadvantaged neighborhoods where you have a, low, a, a small amount or low, poor access to, to nature has created a situation where we have failed real estate markets, where the private sector really isn't coming in and, and, and looking to make investments in neighborhoods, make those neighborhoods nicer and to contribute to the overall housing stock. And so we need to do three things. We, we need to look at how we can improve the environmental quality of these neighborhoods. We need to remove the housing stock that no longer is habitable. And we need to do it in a way where we don't have greenwashing and people are displaced because of the improvements to the neighborhoods. So that's one way. The second thing that we need to start to address working in some of these dispossessed neighborhoods is that the people that we work with have, have because they've not had a long-term history or connection with various green environmental things, to the extent that they've had any connection, it's been through the Discovery Channel. So how do we start to have a conversation about what could, what's possible in their neighborhood and what do they want? And that's got to be done in a way that's inclusive, where they get to participate in deciding what they want, that they, it's inclusive in getting to decide how they want to see it happen. And it's inclusive in terms of how it's implemented in a way so that they get to stay there. So, Morgan, what have been the most startling or unexpected findings that have emerged from the Baltimore Ecosystem Study thus far? Well, to me, it's the long-term history of the city and going back to its its segregationist history in the late 1910s of trying to make to formalize segregation and to make it something that was completely legal and when that went to the Supreme Court and it didn't work how there were attempts to make it informal and uh, and informal meant putting it on deeds and creating sort of agreements among neighbors in a, in, a, in a neighborhood that they would not sell to certain types of people. And if they did, someone did sell to, to an African-American, people in the, in the neighborhood would burn that house down. Wow. It's, it's startling to me that it was so purposeful. And it's really astounding to me that it's left such a long-term imprint upon the city. And as we look to try to revitalize neighborhoods and, and raise up the whole city, what we're dealing with that, that history that is social and economic and, and environmental. 
So I think it's helpful for our listeners to know who are not from the Mid-Atlantic region or not from Maryland or Baltimore, that Baltimore was the first city in the United States to use race as a, a driving factor in local land use and zoning. And this whole pattern of residential segregation really took off from the process Baltimore City put in place in 1917. So it's, it's really interesting, Morgan, to hear you say it's still with us, right? And it's still framing and shaping life outcomes. Mike? Yes, yeah, so Morgan, I'd like to follow up on your last comment and just ask you a question a little off, off of our, our plan here. But so you, you talk about that this systematic, continuous disempowerment of, uh, of African-Americans, of black folks, people of color, and it's surprising. It's surprising to white folks um, like myself and you how much and how persistent this has been throughout history. And but it, but it's not shocking to, to folks of color, to black people. Why is that? And how do we overcome that? How do we how do we get folks who are predisposed to be helpful, but who really just don't understand the history of how we got to where we got to? How, how, how do we overcome that? Well, I think that we need to disabuse folks of the notion that everyone has choice, that we can all live where we want to live, that we all have been able to live where we want to live. And perhaps as a means of enfranchisement is to recognize that that segregation was perpetuated upon Jews as well, that it, it said that on deeds that you couldn't sell to, to a black or a Jew. And Catholics. And well, and I was going to get on to the Catholics too. So all those Irish and Italians were Catholic. And, and so it was this, some people weren't able to live where they wanted to and other people enjoyed privilege. And to help people understand that it hasn't been always fair and it's still not fair. And even as we work to make it more and more fair, we, we have the footprint of history upon us. And it, it affects not only what we have, the patterns of decline of poor environments and economic situations and, and of housing, but also affects you know, the way that we, we can move forward and that we need to move to come up with new ways of, of inclusion for people to be involved. And uh, I have no idea about remedies per se, but we need to, to come up come forward with an open mind and, and for some people to recognize that they have had privilege and it's not their specific guilt or responsibility to fix it. But, you know, for us to come forward and go, how can we collectively work together and include people in, in neighborhoods and in government agencies and, and try to make our, our cities more equitable places to live? And, and I think that's a fundamental part now of how the city is trying to proceed with its environmental sustainability efforts. And to add to what you've, you've said and maybe add and emphasize and to, and to recognize it's not as simple as declaring that there's a level playing field now, that we're treating people equally now, that you've had this multi-generational systematic disadvantagement or disenfranchisement of certain people based upon their ethnicity, their race, particularly black Americans. And that that it's just not as simple as saying, okay, we won't we'll stop discriminating now and it's a level playing field. And recognizing that that long history has made the playing field incredibly unlevel. 
Yeah, I, I think so. And and I think now we, we have to turn to procedurally in environmental justice, the two P's are pattern and procedure, like what is and how to get to be there. And as we look at to the future, we, we need to talk about what would folks like to see and procedurally, how do we get there? And so we, we need to turn our attention to particularly the, the inclusion process of trying to create a more equitable environment for the people who are alive today and for future generations. So where can folks learn more about the Baltimore Ecosystem Study and your work? Well, we were available on online on the website, which is, I believe, bsltr.org. I wrote a book called The Baltimore School of Urban Ecology, which talks about a number of our issues, the issues of the that we've just been talking about. We have quarterly science meetings. So for those who live in Baltimore in the region and want to come to any one of our meetings, they're, they're welcome to attend. And and I think that, you know, I think just getting involved for those, again, who live in the Baltimore region of just getting involved and trying to make Baltimore a better place can, can get involved as the city tries to develop its new sustainability plan and, and get more people involved in trying to make the city a better place to live. And Morgan, where can people find your book, The Baltimore School of Urban Ecology, you said it's called? That's right. Well, it's published through Yale University Press. So you could go online and purchase from Yale University Press. Don't forget to support your local bookseller. Go there. Um, it's also available other places online. All right, so our next three questions are what we call our lightning round um, questions, and we want you to just give us the first thing that comes into your head when we ask you the questions. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? I think the key thing is for people to get involved and don't wait for other people to do things for them. I'm not sure how that plays into our second question, right. but what one action could our listeners, folks who are just average, you know, folks who aren't engaged in government, what could they do to build a more equitable and sustainable future? Well, I think that they could get organized with their neighbors, have a discussion about what they like about their neighborhood, what they don't like about their neighborhood, get, as I said, organized and start to figure out how they could make the changes to keep what they got and that they like and, and fix the stuff that they don't like. As a Forest Service employee, I'll, I'll always argue for planting a tree, but that's not necessarily what everyone needs. And if you're successful in the work that you're doing, Morgan, what does Baltimore City and the Chesapeake Bay look like 30 years from now? There won't be one vacant home or vacant house in the city of Baltimore. Thank you, Morgan, for being so generous with your time today. We really appreciate the work that you do, and thank you for spending time with us. My pleasure. It was a great privilege to be with you. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 